and Israel, you probably know that, was considered to be the startup nation. And there's actually a book by that name that, that you can find on Amazon that talk about the fact that how is a company, is a, a country or a state that is so small, became a capital for innovation and startups. And actually, Israel, a fun and interesting fact, Israel is second only to the U.S. itself in the number of startups it has. So think about the, the magnitude, right? Such a small country has almost the same amount of, of startups just like the U.S. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Yoav Sneer. Yoav served in the Israeli military for three years, finishing his term with the rank of Sergeant First Class. Then he spent 22 years working for Amdocs, a software giant specializing in programming billing systems for telecommunications companies worldwide, attaining the title of Global Head of Digital Partnerships. After his career at Amdocs, he was the Chief Partnerships Officer for Novell Capital, a small startup funding platform providing B2B companies with growth capital and resources. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Yoav. You have a want to welcome you today to the corporate couch. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I was uh, I'm looking forward to having a, an interesting conversation today. Pretty sure you're the first guest. I've had some internationally born guests, but uh, you will be the first one that was born in Israel, if that's correct. Um, yeah, I did. I, I was. I I was born and raised in Israel. Moved here in 2008 with. Uh, my wife and two boys came here for three years. It's been 15, so Casey has been good to me, I guess. Yeah, very nice, very nice. Um, yeah, I uh, we're going to get into a little bit of childhood, but let's uh, start with a fun question. So even for people that know you fairly well, what would be one thing that would surprise them about you? That's a tough one. Um, I'm pretty much an open book people who know me know a lot but you know what here's here's one um back in probably the mid 2000 when i was still back in israel running development team for amdocs and there was end of the uh, like a recruitment campaign for new employees and back then there was a lot a lot of competition for, well, like most of the time, right? On For good employees. So they basically did an interesting spin-off on recruitment campaign. And 
took some a few kind of uh, few employees or people that started from the company from day one, which I did. I joined come Amdoc straight out of college as a developer and grew up through the ranks to be exactly where I am today. And so back then I was a development manager. I was running a, a development shop with uh, I think probably like 40, 50 employees across three different continents. And they basically did a, like a, a story of, you know, this is your app, this is, or this is the employee, this is what they did, this is how they got to Amdocs, this is what they like. And they put that recruiter campaign on billboards up and down Israel. So I was, if you would go like uh, on you know, one of the highways, you can see my, my picture on a huge billboard. And uh, you know, that's, uh, wow. you know, that's something that you know, most people don't know. And when I, I, I usually use that with the game, if, you know, to, Three, three truths in a line, yeah, right? Two so truths in a line. Right? Usually, usually, I get away with it. Now, it would be phenomenal if you have the picture of that—a uh, picture of one of the billboards. Is that does that exist or? Actually, I do. <laughs> and not, not only that, they wanted to, to, to give it a spin. So uh, the picture is is of me with the. Uh, a red electric guitar and leather pants. So I'm not sure you want to use it for the podcast picture, <laughs> but I definitely have that. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, yeah, I know you're an aspiring musician also, but we'll talk about that a little later on. So what what was fun for you as a, a child growing up in Israel? What what did you love doing? Um, aside from music, which I started on music, started learning guitar and playing the guitar probably like at the age of, 15, I guess, something like that. And music was and still is a big part of my life. So that's one thing I love. And the other thing is just, you know, being outside and being with people. So in general, you know, Israel, in a way, very much like like here in, in Kansas City, is a very warm and welcoming environment. And as a child, and, you know, I'll, I'll date myself here, but uh, we didn't have uh, <laughs> a lot of cable TV or, or definitely not streaming, right? So if you wanted to see your friends, you had to go downstairs or go outside and play, whether it's soccer or or, or do the things. And I, I spent from a very young age, I joined a, a youth group kind of like similar to the Boy Scout here, but a bit different. Um, I, where I spent a lot of my time and I have a, had a lot of friends. I was uh, an instructor and later on, I, I basically was there up until the time I graduated from high school. So I spent a lot of time with my friend over there, the, the youth group. And that's it. Like, yeah. Being outside, basically. Yeah. That's, yeah. The, the old the old days, right? Yeah. <laughs> you got out first thing in the morning with your friends, came back for lunch, then went out after lunch, came back for dinner, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. My 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 parents used to say that, especially when I was a bit older, right, toward, toward like high school, and I would leave the house in the morning and come back in the middle of the night and they'd say, hey, they, they wouldn't see me for a few days because uh, when, when I came back, they were already asleep. <laughs> and of course, we didn't have cell phone back then, so they literally didn't know where I am. But I guess that's very much the same for most of us at 
that age. Yes, 100%. So what um, kind of what was your childhood dream in terms of when you became an adult, you wanted to be what? I think from when I was earlier in my early child, well, when I was at the end of like high school, I already, I think I already knew I wanted to do something with computers or, or, or programming. So I was kind of set on that from relatively early age. And, and I was playing with computers from relatively early age, but I think before that, you know, I would probably want to do, I would say I wanted to do something around music. I knew I would not be a rock star or, or a famous singer, but uh, I want to be behind the scene and uh, the, the entire process of music recording or producing was always fascinating to me. And actually when I, it was time to choose my major and go to college, I kind of debated between doing software engineering or go to the other side and do a recording engineer and go to be a recording engineer or a producer. And I've chosen the technology path, which worked out pretty well for me in terms of a, a career. But actually like about five years ago, give or take, I, there was a point where I said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm at, the time, at the point in my life where I, I, I can do some more stuff. And I went back to school. Actually, I did a, a recording and engineering recording engineering certificate at the Johnson uh, JCCC at the community college. And you know, I have a small studio here at home and nothing, you know, not professional, semi-professional, but that's kind of a side hobby for me. So I, that's something I, I came back to as, at the later stage in life. I don't post a video of our conversation, at least not yet, but uh, you know, you're very clean cut, hair looks great, short hair. What was the longest hair you've ever had, uh, you know, in your life and how long was it? <laughs> well, that's almost a, a planned question. Well, when I was, when I was younger, actually when I was young, I had short hair. And then af after my army service, I, I grew up, I, I had a long hair. I had uh, hair probably all the way, you know, down to the bottom of, of my back. Wow. And you, you cannot see it with the short hair, but I have curly hair. I actually had like almost surely temple curls, like thick, big ones wow. all the way down. Wow. And Women so... were jealous of you, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Even my wife was when we met, I guess. <laughs> say, hey, I don't have that hair. See, we reveal, but... you we reveal everything on this show. It's not just your professional journey. We, we get into the hairstyles and all that. So I had to ask that. So talk about, so you're, you're, uh, you know, obviously, uh, not that I'm an expert, but I know Israel, you have to serve uh, mandatory uh, three years in the, in the defense forces, I believe. So talk about your post high school experience, both education wise and as, and as part of your um, commitment to the military forces in um, Israel. Um, you're right. In, in Israel, uh, active duty is mandatory. It's three years for, for men, two years for women. At least it was uh, when I did, I think it kind of changed later on. 
but uh, I joined the Israeli Defense Forces. I was uh, part of the the armored corps. So I was in the <coughs> in the tanks. I was a tank commander, and, and this is for this is the that for three years. And then after I I did the, the three years, I stayed on active reserve for probably about 15 years or more or less up, up until the time I moved to the States and was uh, the deployment are different it's, it's than here when you do active reserve. It's usually a month or, or a few weeks at a time because Israel obviously is smaller and you don't go overseas for, for the deployment. But that's, that's something that obviously made a big impact on, on my life, on, on my personality. And I think in a way for most people who serve in, regardless if it's in Israel or in the US or anywhere else in the world, um, I, I truly believe that A, giving back to your country in such a way is very meaningful. And it's very hard, obviously. It's, uh, it's not, you know, all, all rosy, right? It's a it's a very challenging experience for a young man or a, a young woman, but also give you back a lot. I think that you can see people go into the army, and I see it here as well as you know, basically children at the age of eighteen, and they come out of the other side, and mature men and women, and and the perspective you get, the, the experiences, and a bit. Later on in my career, I you know I was a, a staff sergeant and I I led a, a small team and I actually I helped toward the end of my career I, I was a, an instructor in the in, in the professional school for you know for tanks if you will right so I taught young soldiers uh, the way around those those big machines. And, and that's also something that you learn from. In general, I also be believe that teaching is, is the best way to learn. There's a say that you know you, you learn the most from your from the ones who you teach, right? So I think that that's very true. Yeah. So tell me, tell me, you know, I, I, including myself, I most listeners I don't think know the kind of the process that you know uh, the youth of Israel have to go through. So is it right after high school, you go into the your three-year commitment, I, and I think now it's a 32-month commitment. I think they've lessened it, but uh, when you were there, it was three years. You know, t talk about that experience and, and as, as well as your post-secondary uh, uh, education experience. So you go from, yeah, more or less for when you graduate high school, there are a few rounds of, of recruitment, so you get assigned a date and and then you basically go and then you you do the you know, the training initial training and depending on what you do whether you know some people are you know kind of what they call frontline or warriors and some are more professional experts and some are more of a back office operation but depends on on the profession that they assign to you and you get the, the relevant training, and then you go and and do what you've been taught to do. And that's that. And then when 
you know, after I, I graduated from, from the army at kind of the end of 21, I took some time off, like most Israelis do or at least did. And I, they go to, a, usually people go to a, some kind of a world tour or, or hiking or you know, somewhere in the world. And it, it changes with the time. There, is, there was time that where South America was very popular. There was time that people would go to India and go to an ashram somewhere in the high in the mountains. Um, mine was actually kind of, you can say boring maybe, <laughs> but you know, I actually wanted to see the States. So I, I, I traveled uh, to the US and I did, uh, I hiked up and down the US, East Coast, West Coast, all the most of the national park. And, I love it, obviously. That uh, that might be part of the reason we came here at some point. But uh, that was my post-army travels, and then I came back, and it was time to start to pick a profession. And as I told you, I debated between the, the music and tech, and decided on tech. And I I went to school at the the Technion, the Israeli Institute of Technology. Which is kind of a version of, you know, probably here, like somewhere between MIT or Georgia Tech, in a much smaller scale, of course. Mostly Israel is smaller, but uh, a very high, high level, high end technological institute. And I did my, I did, I learned four years in software and information system engineering. And then when I graduated, I swore, I said, hey, that was good, but it was very hard. And actually, I'll, I'll tell you a story about that in a minute, about my first semester. But I said, there's no way in hell that, that I'm going to do my master's, right? I'm done. You know, maybe, you know, in 10, 20 years when uh, I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll be handing over the keys to the CEO seat and the board will say, hey, but in order to get the, or the big dream job, you got to have your master's, maybe then, but unless, if that doesn't happen, no way, right? Guess how much, is, how much time it took me to go back to school and do my master's? Three years. Three years? Okay. Yeah. Three years. So what changed? What changed? I... I started now, Docs, I was a developer, you know, and I did different things, different technologies, different applications. And, and one, one of the great things about Andox about being in a large company, especially in the growth stage, where Andox was back then, like growing like crazy, uh, from both from a revenue perspective and, and personal perspective, then you got all opportunities and you, know, you, you grow with the company. So I had, I've done a lot of different things. And but after three years, I had I had an itch to do like to learn more, to do more, to diversify. And one of my friends wanted to do the, and her masters. One of my friends who uh, we learned together, we did our first the, the engineering degree together. She wanted to do her master's and the MBA. And she said, hey, why don't we do it together? And I said, you know, why not? So 
do my master's degree. And that, but that was the end of it. After that, I, that were my academics. Now, tell me, so you, you before you took your kind of uh, post-military, I'm going to take a break and go someplace fun. Uh, had you ever been to the United States? Uh, yeah, I was. I, I, I was. First time I came to the States was at the age of 14. I came with my dad. It was my uh, my uh, bar mitzvah trip or my bar mitzvah gift from my parents. Yeah, that's uh, a nice gift. <laughs> yes, it is. It was. Uh, and my father was uh, also an, an an entrepreneur and an executive, uh, a very high caliber. And he was even back in the eighties where it wasn't that. International business was not as common as today. You know, he was traveling the world and he took me on one of his business trips. And then we took some time for, you know, he, he stayed in the US. I met, actually flew all the way from Israel to New York by myself, first time at the age of 14. Look at it today, the, being, being a parent and sending my, my kids on a flight across the ocean. Yeah, you would never do it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I sent my oldest son from Kansas City to New York on a direct flight to meet his grandparent. Um, I think it was the age of 16 for the first time. And, and he had, at this point, he had more mileage than I had at the age of probably 25. Right, because and obviously my kids, with our roots being in Israel and and live, growing up here, a we're going back and forth to Israel uh, a lot when they were younger, and also we we like to travel, so we travel a lot both you know in the states and outside of the states. So my kids have so much mileage. Yeah, I guess right. like well, many younger, you know, the, many of the younger generation, it's obviously much more common today. Everyone goes everywhere. Yeah, hundred percent. So, what? Tell me whether the first time as a fourteen-year-old or your subsequent trip to the U.S. Uh, after the, your uh, military service. Obviously, you had some prior to coming to the U.S. There's some perception of what the U.S. is. And so it was, what was the biggest difference between the perception before you came to the U.S. and then after you had visited once or twice? What was like, oh, my God, I didn't realize this about the U.S.? Or what was that? I think the one thing that is probably true for many people that don't, don't live here uh, is that U.S. is, or people thinking about the U.S., they usually think about the big cities, right? The one that you see in the movies, the one that are an icon, right? So you think of New York, or you think about San Francisco with uh, uh, the Golden Bridge. And so those are the, the icons or the, the perception from the outside, right? The city that never sleeps or the, the magical Bay Area. Uh, you know, maybe the big, uh, the big parks, the great outdoors, but that's more or less it. Now, obviously, and you also think about a different, like, for example, American as 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 
one nation or you think, hey, like you have, you have Israelis, you have European, you have America, right? Now it's not really true because, you know, yes, you know, everyone are American, but there's so much diversity right. between the big cities and the small cities, between the East Coast and the West Coast and the South and the Midwest. There are a sudden thing that we are, everyone, we are have our own personality, of course, but there are different areas and different styles of living that make a lot of impact on who we are, how we are. And, and actually, no disrespect to New York and San Francisco, right? But most of the US is the middle of the US, right? Whether it's the, the farms or the small towns, that's most of the US, at least, I'm not sure if population-wise, but definitely size-wise. So that's something that you learn. I kind of realized when I was doing the coast to coast and driving through the middle of the US and also the diversity of the different landscape, the different styles, the different cultures or subcultures, but it takes a lot of time, right? Like in the US, if you want to go from Kansas City to Denver even, right? It's a nine hour drive or two hour flight. And you can drive for hours and see the same scenery, which was, for me, growing up in Israel, it was weird. The reason is, Israel, just to give you a perspective, it's a kind of maybe one town with the size of Kansas and in, in size, and you can go, and it's very, it's long and narrow. So you can go from, you can drive from north to south or south north, give or take six hours, you know, no traffic. And of course, when you go to Tel Aviv, just like New York, any big city, there's tons of traffic. So it doesn't, right. it doesn't really take you six hours. You can just, just go into Tel Aviv, it can take you two hours. But in general, it's about six hour drive up and down and less than two east to west. And within that very small, relatively small distance, you have almost every geography and scenery you can imagine. You have the desert down south, you have the mountains with the peaks and some snow up north, you have the Jerusalem up in the, in the mountains, you have the Mediterranean bit, and then you have the Dead Sea and, and, and so on and so forth. You can go through all of that within just you know, a few hours drive. And here in the States, it takes, something takes a day or two for the scenery to change. So that's something that was also very different for me as, as an experience coming, coming to the States for the first time. Sure. So after, after your uh, college experience, did, uh, was Amdocs your first job out of college? Uh, yeah, my first real like corporate job out of yeah. college. I, I had many different jobs. I was actually working by choice from more or less the age of 12 uh, because I wanted to have money and I wanted to have the freedom. Yeah, sure. My first, my first entrepreneurial in, endeavor was actually at the age of 12. I started a, a I was a, a DJ for birthday and bar mitzvahs with, with my friend. We coupled together some, uh, you know, an old, uh, 
tape deck, a few speakers from, from the storage somewhere, and we started a business. We made some good money back then. I'm sure. And, but getting right out of college, being an entrepreneur uh, at my core, I was sure I'm going to join a startup. That's what I wanted to do. And Israel, uh, you probably know that, uh, was considered to be the startup nation. And there's actually a book by that name that, that you can find on Amazon that talks about the fact that how is a company is a, a country or a state that is so small and became a capital for innovation and startups. And actually, Israel found an interesting fact, Israel is second only to the US itself in the number of startups it has. So think about the the magnitude, right? Such a small country has almost the same amount of, of startup just like the US and has, or it used to have before everything crashed, about a hundred unicorns, right? So, you know, out of college, I said, okay, I wanted to join a startup. I was pretty sure I'm going to join a startup and be in that thing. But, you know, somehow from here to there, I, I joined Amdocs a big company, not as big as it is today. When I joined Amdocs, it was probably about three, 5,000 employees uh, doing uh, maybe less than a billion in revenue. When I left, it was 27,000 employees doing uh, more than $4 billion in revenue, working with almost each and every telecommunication and service provider around the globe. Um, but you know, sometimes life takes you in unexpected paths, and that was actually it was good. It yeah. was a great ride. As I said, I got so many opportunities and experiences I wouldn't get anywhere else. Sure. How did you get the first job? I mean, how did you get the Amdocs job? What was the process? Like you're you're looking for startups, and then you, you end up at Amdocs. So how? What was that? like just like here and especially at the at every school you have for the third and fourth year when you're a junior and a senior there's the, the job fair and all the a lot of companies the local and the big companies come to campus and set up boots and try to lure you in and everyone tell you how great they are and why you should join them so we went window shopping and, uh, the job fair, handed out resumes, and got callbacks just like you do it today. And I got a few calls back from a few startups, and I got a call back from Amdocs, and met with with the startups, what with Amdocs, and what can I say? Amdocs made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Yeah, so I mean, you had a great career there. I mean, uh, twenty two years. At, yeah, and uh, obviously, as you know, I, I grew up in the, uh, my early career was in the telecom industry for both uh, the the big behemoth uh, AT&T and then uh, the little uh, uh, David, uh, you know, versus Goliath uh, sprint in the early days. So Amdocs is very familiar to me, not that I ever worked on uh, the billing system uh, per se, but what were some of your highlights there and your learnings working for such a big company? 
possible so I had the opportunity to do many things. So I spent about 10 years on the technology side of the development. Then I uh, I ran a professional services organization for our self our self-care or, or self-service product. Um, and then moved moved to the States, joined the Sprint account, now T-Mobile, ran a big part of the operation there. So I did account management. And then I moved to partnership, which I've been doing for the past 10 years, more or less. I ran North America partnership and then global partnership, actually from Kansas City, although they tried to get me to move throughout those years. Um, but I said, thank you, but no thanks. I'll, I'll stay here and travel more, which worked out pretty well, I have to say. And so probably a lot of learning. I think some of the highlights is obviously, you know, the, just the scale of projects that, that we tackle is just my, looking, looking at it right now, looking backwards, just you know, mind blowing and, and being able as, as a team, as a very big team, uh, to deliver projects at that scale. And when we're talking projects at the $100 million mark, and I can't even count the amount of, of man hour and code, line of code that went into each one of those projects and deliver those projects on time, on budget, most of the time. And Androx used to have and still have the best delivery rate in the industry, like 99 or 98%, which in an industry that has an average delivery rate of 30 to 40%, that's, that's an, an, an amazing achievement by itself. And being a part of that, team that delivers despite the odds, despite the challenges, was, was a great experience. And so that, I think that's one thing. And another thing, and when I was an account executive with the Sprint account, and I worked very closely with the, the Sprint leadership and you know, the Sprint CTO back at that time was uh, Stephen Bai. And I worked with him and his team on Sprint Future and, and how to help Sprint get to where they, they want to be. And you know, I I had an I identified an opportunity to build actually a new product for Amdocs that did not exist to, to handle the sprint need for billing and, and, and activating and managing what they called back then machine to machine. Now they call it IoT. And, but that product did not exist, uh, not for Amdocs and not for many others. There were a few startups that started that back in the day, but nothing that was mature enough to even acquire. So I said, hey, that's, that's, that's a startup I can start. But you know, instead of going out and outside Amdocs and starting that startup, I did it in-house. In so I evangelized that idea got some exactly sponsorship from the North America division president and actually went all the way up to Andox to the CEO and management and convinced them that that's something we need to build. And, and I, I, I guess it worked because they, they gave me budget, they gave me some staff. And, and for a while, about six months, we ran as, as, as a separate unit, almost like a startup within the big corporate and we build that product. And then, like uh, any good founder, 
once the product was up and we had some some leads, uh, even a, a small proof of concept deal, and I let I I let someone else take take the lead, and I moved on to the next thing. But it was it was an amazing experience. Of course, a running startup with with a backup of a big company is easier than doing right doing <laughs> on your own bootstrapping in your garage <laughs> yeah so but, you know, it's, uh, it's, yeah so it's interesting uh, so you you have a unique perspective because the first you know eight nine years of your career you're working in israel so you come over here and similar to kind of visiting the u.s for the first time but from a culture perspective how do you see the impact of culture on the way the U.S. does business, as well as on the business relationships. This is a fascinating thing, right? Culture and business is something that a lot of people, I guess some people do, but you know, maybe a lot of people don't recognize what a big part of culture plays in the way we do everything. And of course, business is included, right? Because we grew up, in, in different environment and it form who we are, what we are and how we do things, how do we see things. And there's actually, I started that when I did my master's degree, I, I took a few courses about uh, culture and, and business and how it relates. And there are a lot of different frameworks and we find it, but there's one framework that is pretty, it's actually pretty straightforward. And look about, look at six dimensions and how different nations and different countries are different with those dimensions and how does that impact the way they do business? So we're talking about things like uh, individualism, power distance, uh, uncertainty avoidance, uh, long-term orientation uh, and stuff like that. So for example, right? And I'll give you like, for example, Israelis and, and South Americans, uh, operating in a, in a well in a with uncertainty or without structure, while people from Western Europe uh, and I guess you know, a lot of Americans as well have a need high level of clarity and structure and process. And so, if you put those two groups in a room and, and, or in a team, that can be that can work very well or can go south very fast, right? And, and I've seen that firsthand. I've seen when, when I was working with Andocs, we many times brought startups from Israel or from around the world to meet with, with our customers uh, across the ocean, across you know, the Atlantic, across continent. And I would, uh, I would sit there having the perspective of both one side of the Atlantic and the other, and I see the dynamics, and then we would step out of the meeting, and I would ask the, let's say, the CEO, the founder of the Israeli startup, so how do you think the, the meeting was, right? And he would say, great, they loved us. We're going to close the deal in a week, and you know, it, it's just, you know, it was, it was phenomenal. <laughs> and I, I would look at him and say, okay, let me tell you how it, how it was. And because I was sitting there and, and looking at the, uh, let's say, whether it's the sprint, uh, the sprint team or the AT&T team and their, what they didn't say and their, their body language. And I would tell the, the guy, listen, 
it was an okay meeting. Um, they're not never calling you back. You're not getting the deal. And here are the things they didn't ask you, or this is where they winch or 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 the things that you said. And usually they they just don't see it, right? Another example is a very different one is personal space. So people that grew up in, in countries where space is, is available, right? US, for example, has a lot of a lot of land. And the personal space in the US is measured in at least a few feet, right? If I would go even pre-COVID, right? If I would go more than a few feet away from you, if I would come any closer, you would feel that I'm invading your personal space and you would probably back, you know, back up, right? And you would tell me, hey, why are you in my face? In other countries, let's say Israel, where it's a very small country, there's no, no real estate, or in India, and personal space is measured in inches. Right. And that's considered very acceptable. Again, if you translate it into the business world, you know, it, it has a lot of impact, right? So, and there are many, many other aspects of how our culture and the way we grew up and the country we from and our beliefs impact business. Now, obviously today, especially you know, the younger generation uh, are more, you know, there's more exposure, right? Everything is, is open, everything is on YouTube. So people know more about other cultures and, 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 and religion, but still knowing about it from a perspective of, of, of an influence or YouTube is one thing, living it is another. Sure. Yeah, and I think uh, obviously the internet uh, expedited and accelerated the learnings across uh, countries, but I think it actually started with MTV. <laughs> You know, everybody is watching the same, you know, kind of uh, influencers and musical groups and artists and, you know, kind of uh, kind of globalizing that. Uh, but so you have a great career at Amdocs. I mean, it's phenomenal, right? You just progressed working for this company. You saw it grow immensely, even though it was a you know fairly large company when you joined. Uh, what was your decision to leave and wh why did you leave the Amdocs? The decision to leave was just in terms of personal growth and career. I had an amazing run at Amdocs. I have almost only good things to say, and I got to do so many great things. At some point, you basically exhaust everything. I've done everything I wanted to do in Amdocs, and there were obviously other roles I, I didn't do, but those were things that I wasn't interested in doing. So I was... And, and the partnership gig is basically the longest position I had in my career. I did probably like five years on running North America partnership and then five years doing the global partnership role. And before that, every year or two years, I changed, I promoted, I, I joined a different team, different project. And so I love doing partnership, but even that you know, after 10 years, becomes a bit more of the same as looking for a, for my next challenge. And I decided, you know, maybe it's time to, to look elsewhere, maybe do a different industry or a different scale. And I was lucky that I could do both. I moved from 
big corporate in telecommunication or IT uh, to a startup, a FinTech startup. Uh, I joined Novel Capital. I joined the executive team of the like, 20, 20 people startup uh, doing non-dilutive funding for B2B companies. So actually a startup helping other startups to grow or fund their business without taking the uh, delusion on, on their cap table. And uh, so I joined them ahead of the plan A round to build the partnership function from, from the ground up, uh, which was something I haven't done before. Obviously I ran big partial organization, big deals, uh, developed new relationship, new partnership, but I've never done like from scratch, right? So when I joined Novel, there was basically almost no, there were a few informal partnership, but nothing structured. When I left, we had a formal partnership program that I rolled out across the US. We had a, a good number of partners and I can't share numbers obviously, but a good percentage of the incoming deals was uh, coming from partners. Um, and that was something I've never done before. It was a great experience, a very good learning experience. And I got to have my startup experience that I, I was looking for straight out of college at the later stage of my career. And that was uh, kind of what I expected. And of course, a few things I didn't. Yeah, so talk about that. So you, again, Amdocs, approximately 30,000 employees, give or take, global company, uh, you know, uh, and you leave there. So you go to a startup uh, with all your partnership expertise. And what was the biggest surprise? Given the fact that I was working, even when I was at Amdocs, for about, I was working for many years with startups as a mentor, as, a, as an advisor. So I wasn't, the, the startup experience or the startup realities wasn't you know, anything new to me. I've never done it from the inside at the ground level, but I knew a lot about startup, startup life, the challenges the founders face. So most of it was not new to me. Probably the one thing that I, that I didn't expect was, the way that you work with people. And of course, in a startup, everyone wear different hats, right? So, you know, the CEO makes the coffee, as they say. So everyone do many different things, but in the startup all the time, you have basically like the founders, sometimes they have their first time founders, sometimes they're an experienced one. You have a few people at the leadership position, usually people with a lot of experience. And then you have, Usually, the rest of the team, especially at an earlier stage, are people straight out of college or people relatively earlier in their career. So there's not a lot in the middle, right? So it's either you have years and years of experience or almost none. So that gap and the fact that there's no one in between that can fill that gap uh, was something I didn't expect to have uh, I didn't, I didn't realize how much of an impact it can make on a business on, in the day-to-day, -day, right? So, you know, obviously, you know, in a startup, a VP, a C-level, you do all your work yourself, right? Even if you have a team, so either you pick up the phone and call 
and call partners or call customers, or you, if you're the CTO, you work on code or you work on environment. But then when you want to delegate, and I'm, I'm a big believer in, in delegation and, and letting the team do and support them so they can grow. Um, I almost did it too much when I started uh, at a startup. You know, I was used to you know, giving people the assignment, giving them the context, giving them all the support, and let them do their thing their own way. And I realized that, especially with people at the earlier stage of the career, they need much more guidance and more involvement. And you sometimes need to handhold. Sometimes people are talented and, and can figure it out, uh, but maybe not in the time, the short times and, and deadline that you need, given you know the, the fast pace of a startup environment. And I guess that's something that I knew because 20 years ago when I ran development teams, I, I had people, developers that came straight out of college, but I always had the, the more experienced people, right? So we had a team that was very diverse from age perspective, from experience perspective. So you always had the more senior developers and the team leads. So you had the support structure. In a startup, you don't have And so that, I think that, probably one learning experience or something that I didn't expect going into startup. Sure. But yeah, no, that's a great perspective and insight on startups, having worked at a few myself. I, so what you're, you're at, when you're still at Amdocs, you got into this uh, mentoring, uh, uh, I mean, for really great organizations, Techstar, the Pipeline Entrepreneurial Fellowship, uh, startup mentor, you know, board of advisors, you know, what, what drove you to, to do that uh, later on in your career at Amdocs? Part of it was my hunger for doing, again, for the entrepreneur in me, you know, I was having, I didn't want to, you know, earlier, before I left Amdocs, there were, there were many years where I, I love what I did. I still have a lot to do. I didn't want to learn, leave Amdocs, but I wanted to get involved uh, again with the startup experience. So that was a way for me, A, to get involved and have that startup experience without actually being a startup. It was also a way for me uh, to give back to my community, whether here in Kansas City or back in, in Israel and put into work or helping people that uh, did not have my perspective, like you know, we talked about earlier, whether it's the multicultural experience or uh, first time founders that never had the opportunity to, to sell to a large organization like AT&T or to work with them and, and what it takes and what they're expecting. And also how you scale, right? Uh, how you build when you're a 20 people organization, uh, usually, you know, if you have the right team and, and enough grit, you'll wing it, you'll make it happen, right? When you go over a certain size, you have to have structure, you have to have, uh, even at the early stage, you have to have KPIs you work against and measure yourself. Uh, plans, target, uh, more organized planning process, strategic planning process. And so those are things that I was doing, as a matter of fact, every day. 
but it's not something you're bored with. You know, I learned it from my mentors and from my my managers over the years. So that was an opportunity for me to share that knowledge, that experience uh, with, with others, especially with first-time entrepreneurs, uh, you know, younger founders. So that's why I started, and you know, it was also fun. Like, given the help on the one hand, and you know, the more you give, the more you get back. And, sure. and if uh, if you see a startup or a founder that you work with, uh, you know, making it happen and making it, it's it, it just makes you feel good. So there's another. It's another way that you you made an impact uh, in. A, in a small scale, right? Your your sure. small contribution. Yeah. So you know, I think it, honestly, it's a brilliant strategy career-wise, just from a, your own professional and personal development. From you're still at this big company, huge company, and but you 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 know, through the course of your life, you have had this startup entrepreneurial bug, and you get to kind of satisfy that as well as the, the, the other beautiful part of that is you're giving back all your expertise to these founders and, and, and being able to mentor. So I, I really love that. I think that's phenomenal. Um, you know, there's two groups I love to help during the podcast with great leadership advice from people that have had excellent uh, professional accomplishments and careers like yourself. So first group is a recent college graduate and they're trying to get their first job and uh, you know, universities, colleges teach them how to get the degree, but not so much uh, at least in the U S and Hey, this is how you build relationships. This is how you should try to get your first job. And this is how you begin your professional career. What advice do you have to recent college graduates to navigate their job search and start their career? You know, I think getting the first job probably changed very much since the time you and I were looking for one. And probably even the past few years with, with COVID, everything that happened. But I think I would, from the process perspective, things would change all the time from if there's one thing I would maybe recommend or, or give a tip to someone who's starting their career is maybe not from like the process of how to get a job, but what kind of job to get or to look for. So, you know, the fact that you study, for example, computer science, um, yes, usually you'll go and get a developer job, but A, not necessarily, and be what kind of company do you want to work for? And you know, of course, you know nothing is set. And all, you know, your first job can be two years, and most people probably do two to five. And you know, there's not too many people that go the ten and twenty, especially these days. But the path of change is just so fast. But I would say, think about what you want to get from your first job. So whether it's you want to make an impact on a certain industry or on a certain part of the world or on a certain population and, and, and try to go at it from that perspective and have your first job be meaningful for you, not just from, hey, it pays the rent kind of perspective, but also from the perspective that this is a company that does something that you, that you sympathize with, that you identify with, and it gives you another dimension of belonging. I think that that's very important at any stage of, of your career, 
but especially on the first one, it can give you better bonding, you know, better commitment, another stronger reason to, to go and do, be your best. Sure. Yeah, no, no I, I love that take uh, and, and that advice. The uh, other group that I love to help is, you know, these, usually you're an individual contributor coming out of college, so you're not going to lead people from a HR perspective and have people reporting to you. But once you get that promotion and now are a manager or assistant director, whatever the title is called, and now you have people reporting to you and you're responsible for people, what leadership advice do you have for them as they begin their uh, journey uh, as a leader? Being a leader, at least for me, is, is a balancing act. And it's a balancing act between a lot of different things. But one thing I would probably emphasize is between listening and getting perspective on your team and making your own decisions. And that's a very delicate balance that a lot of time, especially younger manager, less experienced managers, um, take to one extreme or the other. I, either they they listen to their team and that's um, analysis paralysis because everyone have their own view and there's no clear guideline on how to move forward or they take it to the other extreme and being kind of the dictator, if you will, and that's, hey, that's my view, that's how we're going to do it and just because I'm the boss. And neither of that, neither of those extreme work. The way I try to do it through my career, and I believe that's that's the leadership style that works for many, uh, is always learn from the team. So listen to what they think, what because a it will help you make the right decision. They'll give you the different data points or perspective you don't have. And also, you know what, if you make a certain decision, you also have perspective on, will it be a popular decision or not? Will it be hard to get the team behind you or not? And it will help you make the decision. But at the end of the day, you need to make your own decision based on, on your view, on your experience, on what you know management is, is expecting, what the company is trying to do, and entire, set of, of parameters that will fit into that decision and you need to make that and you also need to communicate it to the team in a certain way based on the dynamic of the team, based on your personality and the other personalities in a way that will be clear and, and will we'll get them engaged. The, uh, you know, obviously some decisions are harder than others. Some are very straightforward. You know, we're doing this project, this timeline, it's not a big deal, right? You know, we're using this environment, this technology or the other, and let's just do it. Others are a bit more challenging, but I think working with the team and building on, on their insight and then using it to form the right decision, the right message is, is a, a skill you need to master. You have... I've loved your career journey. It's so impressive. And I love how you navigated a very kind of corporate career with a large company, but still fed your entrepreneurial startup 
love and passion. And I know that's where you're focusing on today. Um, and we didn't even get into you co-founded a not-for-profit, but thank you so much for being a guest on the corporate couch today. Thank you very much, Jeff. It was a pleasure talking to you. Reliving some of my career highlights and and some very good questions that took me a while to get my head around. But it was a fun discussion. I hope people that will be listening will find that beneficial or at least fun as as, as we did. Sure, and I I know they will. Come to our next chat. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. So interesting, uh, Yohav's conversation and his career. You know, obviously, our first Israeli born executive spent a lot of his career there, worked for Amdocs, a, you know, a software giant in the telecom industry and, and mainly billing platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, one thing I thought about, though, what a great, like, I think he got promoted. So he's a big guitar player and he wanted to be a, you know, uh, playing a rock band as I think is his childhood aspiration. And I, I love it when you interview musicians. I know you do, Joe. Like I, I should just seek them out. I, I love it. Yeah. He still plays today. Um, he huh? has, I, I think he said he has like 10 guitars or something. I don't know. Um, but so he gets promoted and they put him on various billboards with different poses and he's in his leather pants and he has his guitar. I'm like, what a great culture building thing. Like you get promoted. Imagine in Kansas City or New York or LA, you get promoted and you're, hey, we're gonna put a billboard up for you. And you know, they were not a small company at that time. I mean, obviously when he left in, I think 21, you know, at 31,000 employees. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that was great. And then the other takeaway I had uh, with our conversation is just think about, you know, you spent 22 years at the company. You're the head of global partnerships. And then you decide, I've learned enough here. And I'm going to go to a less than 20 person firm startup. <laughs> and be the chief partnership officer. So I thought that was just fascinating. And, you know, and obviously as an obligation uh, in Israel, you spend three years in the, you know, uh, in the military. Uh, so I yeah. just, just fascinating to me. It, he's just a fascinating guy and, and, and an interesting career that three years in the military, it, it obviously it changes people. All of the worldwide travel that he had done all went together to create the the uh, individual that he was working for 20 years for a huge corporation, a software corporation, living in Israel and then moving to America and uh, working working more with Amdocs. And it was interesting his his uh, discussions of comparing Israel to America. You know, Israel is about the size and shape of the state of New Jersey. That's all that it is. But it does not smell as bad as New Jersey. I I've never been there, bad. but I can. Well, you grew up in New York. I, I'll take your word for it. But it has a huge diversity of geography in all of that. Um, but he said, you know, you can. America is so huge and so diverse 
but embedded inside all that diversity is vastness of sameness, if you will. So you can drive from Kansas City to Denver and see the exact same terrain for nine hours in a row, you know, and see all of Kansas and all of Eastern Colorado. Any any one square foot of that looks like any every other square foot of it for right. nine hours in a row. And uh, so it's just an interesting contrast of, of cultures there, not just the culture of the corporation, but the culture literally of the company of the countries that he's worked in um, between uh, Israel and the United States. Israel is obviously a hotbed for uh, technological innovation and startups. Uh, he said that it has more startups in Israel. Than there, than there are in any other country other than the United States. And I think that's amazing right. for a country the size of New Jersey, essentially. So um, it was just a, a, a really interesting talk. Yeah. What leadership advice would you want to uh, impart on our great audience today, Joe? We are going to go to that great philosopher named Merriam-Webster, who wrote a book that you might be familiar with called The English Dictionary. And um, one time when they posted on their uh, website, any dictionary can be a pocket dictionary if you have big enough pants. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.